This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Alberry's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. We have some teetotalers in our church who would never drink alcohol, and we have beer nerds that brew their own. There's no drama. We have Democrats and Republicans who are members of our church. Uh, we have people that don't vote on principle, you know, and then we have people that are anarcho-capitalists. And it's the gospel that brings everyone together, and our theological distinctives are enough to frame who we are and to move us forward. issues coming out very soon do we know when people will receive it at their doorsteps or mailboxes yes so the new issue always mails the third week of the prior month so either by the end of this week or the beginning of next week subscribers to the print magazine should be receiving the july august issue great so the makers issue gonna have a lot of people doing cool things making cool things in there yes business people entrepreneurs artists Nonprofit leaders. I wrote a profile for that. Which one did you write? The gamers. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that new issue is going to be good. People can get it if they're subscribers. How can people become subscribers? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> we have a very good deal for listeners of this podcast that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. But I first want to just tell you that Christianity Today magazine um, does a really good job of offering redemptive but also honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping church and culture. And as a subscriber, you get 10 award-winning print issues, tablet PDF editions, full access to the website, archives dating back to 1956, and those are only getting better. Yeah, and speaking of the year 1956, that's obviously when Christianity Today started after... Was born. The evangelist Billy Graham had a vision in the middle of the night in which he felt that God was telling him to launch this magazine. Is that true? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, was a it's vision. in it's in uh, Billy Graham's autobiography called Here I Am, I think, that came out about twenty years ago. But anyway, this year we are celebrating our sixtieth anniversary and our October issue will be devoted in large part to talking about beautiful orthodoxy, which is you all have heard of this, is really the cause of Christianity today, communicating the good, true, and beautiful gospel to our readers. So we'll have editor-in-chief Mark Galley um, exploring what beautiful orthodoxy is. We also have a piece um, on how technology has shaped the evangelical movement. And then we also have, we'll be having essays in that issue on evangelical leaders making the case for each of the current presidential candidates with a third essay on why evangelicals should not vote for either candidate. Nice. <laughs> so we, we try to provide election coverage in the print magazine every four years just to give our readers depth and perspective. And this year we'll do that as well. Does CT endorse? No, we, we do not endorse candidates. That part of that is because of our nonprofit status. And then also part of that is just based on, wanting to transcend uh, political divides and wanting the word evangelical to mean more than a political party affiliation. You know, that doesn't keep us from weighing in on very specific issues that we think are important. Yeah, we won't endorse, but we have opinions about <laughs> things. 
lots of the things. Yeah. So we have a special deal. If you want to get that issue and more, you can subscribe now for only $10 if you're a listener to this podcast, which if you're listening to this podcast, I bet you are. If you want that deal, $10, just head over to orderct.com slash the calling and subscribe. You'll, we'll hook you up with a cool subscription to CT. You hey, won't be disappointed. No, you will not. Hey, guess what? We have another interview for people today. Do you know who it is? I'm assuming it's a man who has a beard. That's correct. It's Joe Thorne. <laughs> do you know who Joe Thorne is, Morgan? I do not. He's the pastor of my church. So that well, let's get that out of the way. So you're a fan. So I, I, the opposite. It goes the opposite way. If someone's a, fan, a pastor of your church, you cease to be a fan. It's weird. Right? Like, if you go to someone's church and they're your pastor and you're like, oh, sign my book, that's weird. Is it because you just start to see them as a person with flaws and foibles like everybody else and you can't put them on a pedestal anymore? In general, you see them as a human being as yeah. opposed to a person on a billboard or whatever. Right, right. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. It's not even that you see them as a worse person. It's just that no. you see them as a person. They're, eventually, they will disappoint you on yeah. some level. We'd like this show to have the same effect on people. We'd like people... <laughs> <laughs> if you are a fan, we want you to be disenchanted and disenfranchised. So those are the wrong words. Uh, we want you I to become... I was almost thinking that like, when you have a pastor, it's because you know them more in different roles, like how they act as a parent or a spouse or That's a friend. True. Mm. or a mentor and that that just when people are those things it's hard to like think of yourself as being a fan of them because a fan Mm -hmm. is implies this sense of distance which you don't have when someone's your pastor joe talks a little bit about how he was really invested in his platform for a while and became uh, aware that it was harming his ministry he talks about his struggle with anxiety clinical anxiety and how he addressed uh those problems and uh yeah talks about a lot of he, he used to be a satanist Really? So that's oh my gosh. interesting. He actually talks about the specific church he vandalized at one point. No, it's a good it's a good conversation. I think everyone will enjoy it. It will humanize Joe Thorne for people who Yeah, it sounds like he gets pretty vulnerable. Yeah. If you're talking about your anxiety. I mean I feel I do feel like it's something that a lot of people experience yep. and have been clinically diagnosed as having and yet there's there's still a bit of a you know, if you're spiritually growing, shouldn't you be peaceful or right. shouldn't you have, have gotten over this issue? And especially for church leaders, it's like, if I admit this, am mm-hmm. I unqualified right, all of a sudden? Right, right. So mm. I think it was a, a valuable thing to talk about. Yeah, we look forward to hearing it. Cool. Here it is. Can you tell I'm growing a beard? Oh, I can Again, see something there. I'm mm-hmm. trying. I think I think it's going to come in pretty nice. I, I started Friday. It took me three months mm-hmm. just to get to the point where I had an actual beard. Three months. Three months? It took me forever. I didn't think I could grow one. D- well, what is what counts as an actual beard? Just a beard that covers your face and looks like an actual beard, not like... It's like... Yeah, it doesn't have to be lengthy at all. Yeah. Just an actual, like it's a full beard. Face covering. Yeah. 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 Face mullet. That's what, well, that's what this is. This has become a face mullet. A face mullet. Put that party in the front. Yeah, that's a good strategy. (laughs) It's a good hair strategy. Okay, so um, Joe Thorne, full disclosure, you are my pastor. That's right. You are the pastor of my church. I am one of the four pastors. One of the four pastors. So what would uh, your title be? Lead pastor is the title that they've given me. Okay, so at the beginning of every one of these podcasts, we ask a very simple question, which is how would you describe your calling? 
from early on in my conversion, uh, I'd graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. So about a year after my conversion, I was 19 and had a very strong inner sense of calling to pastoral ministry in particular. Mm-hmm. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 were these key verses that just were continued to rest on my heart, uh, where Paul says, essentially, I'm not going to quote it, but essentially that we we preach Christ, um, teaching every man, admonishing every man with all wisdom, that we might present them complete or mature yeah. in Christ. And I labor with his strength working, in, working within me. So that was, uh, I wanted to be a disciple. I wanted to be maturing. I wanted to be growing. I didn't know anything because I didn't grow up in the church. Um, didn't know the story of Cain and Abel when I was converted. <laughs> so um, I wanted that. I was hungry for that. And I wanted to help others with that. And the longer I spent time in the church and with the church, it became really obvious um, that there wasn't enough discipleship going on, at least from my perspective. Mm. Uh, Not a lot of Bible knowledge, theology didn't seem to be valued. And um, even the church that I was a part of, which was filled with loving people, great Christian people, um, as a new Christian, they kept saying, Joe, you know so much of the Bible, you know so much more of the Bible than we do, which at the time didn't puff me up. Eventually it did. And I became a real jerk. <laughs> How could it not? But, um, but at the time I was horrified. I'm yeah. like, I don't, I'm a baby Christian. How can I know more than you? I don't understand. So the longer I was a Christian, the more I felt called to pastoral ministry, um, to help people uh, know and follow Jesus. And, uh, that just narrowed down, down over time. I felt called to pastoral ministry. Then it was North America church planting, uh, by 94. And then, um, by, by 97, it was church planting in Chicagoland, mm-hmm. and now here we are. So when you say you were – you you talked about you you were shocked by the lack of discipleship, and then you started to talk about a lot of things people know. A lot of people put a distinction between knowledge mm-hmm. and then the things you live out. And some people would even define discipleship as like live, living out the Christian faith, being right. taught to live out the Christian faith. So how do you kind of work with those two tensions? Yeah, well, I think they, they have to go together. Yeah. It's not that um, discipleship is definitely not knowledge. Uh, it's knowledge is a part of discipleship. Sure. And there can't be any experiential walking with Jesus apart from doctrine. Mm-hmm. So they have to go together. That's why I say to, to know and to follow Jesus is kind of the, the summary of what I was passionate about. Uh, but yes, the first thing that I noticed was that there was a lack of theological investment. Yeah. And so that was the, the easiest thing to spot in my sure. particular context. I know in a lot of reformed churches, you know, knowledge is held up and it's, it's very, and this is our tribe, you know, this is very much about being right, having your doctrine on point, knowing the particulars, knowing the confession, the catechism. And, and that is the easy thing. That's the easy aspect of discipleship. Um, but making sure that those truths are, you know, taking root in the heart and bearing the fruit of obedience and godliness. That's really the the hard part, I think, the, the part that God is in control of, and yet we have to take use of all of the means of grace to make sure that that's happening. So um, I think the, the interplay between the two is an essential connection. They are, they, they are not the same thing, doctrinal knowledge yeah. and obedience, but they are inseparably linked. Yeah, yeah. So how long until you said you were uh, saved? I was, uh, I was 18. 18. Yeah. And before that, what did you want to do? I didn't think I'd live to see 30. Really? So I. Like you seriously didn't? (laughs) When I was in high school, I was in health class and and I took a a life expectancy survey. Uh So all the class had to do it. And you have to answer all these questions truthfully, air quotes, by the way, truthfully, and say like, you know, whether or not you drink and drive or whether you're doing drugs or hang out with people that do it, all these things, lifestyle stuff. 
And it said that I would live to be 27. And so I turned it in and the teacher said, you know, stop screwing around, go and take this again. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And it said I would live to be 27. Uh -huh. um, and I honestly just didn't think past a high school. Yeah. Um, I was a, I was a dark kid. I had a lot of big questions. Nobody had answers for me that I found satisfactory, except for Anton LaVey in the Satanic Bible. Uh, much of what he wrote there that he stole from Aleister Crowley, he mm. was no original, um, really resonated with me. And that got me into uh, the occult and a lot of dark stuff. So I was in a really bad place mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, uh, waffling from, you know, suicidal despair uh, to arrogant self-centeredism. And uh, I didn't hear the gospel at all until I was 17. Okay. I think I was an early senior in high school. And I met a girl who started telling me about Jesus. And that was the first time I'd ever heard the gospel. I went to church for the first time in my life after that and really wrestled with the gospel, really wrestled with the claims of Christ. Uh, I knew that I was going to hell. Mm -hmm. I believed that. I believed that was fair and just. And I didn't want to. I, I wanted to experience what these Christians, I kept meeting these Christians, uh, real Christians. And I, I wanted what they had. I would tell my, my pagan friends, this is what I, I mean, I wish I could wake up and be a Christian. Hmm. But, you know, they would say things like, it's too late for you, man. It's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, honestly, it was, uh, you know, about a year of, of hearing the gospel, about nine months of despairing for my soul. And then while reading the gospel of Matthew, uh, in my bedroom one night in the f late summer of 1990, mm -hmm. I was converted and everything changed. Yeah. And how, you said everything changed. Literally all of that stuff you just said, did it all change? Like the suicidal mm -hmm. tendencies, that stuff? Yeah. I mean, you know, I graduated second to last in my high school class. Okay. <laughs> so um, that's... Only one guy beat me. Uh -huh. I'm kind of proud of that. So, yeah, I basically, I got D minuses. Now, I would always test very high, but I wouldn't do any yeah. of the work because who cares? I'm not going to live to see 30. What's the point? Sure. What's the point of life? So, when I, when I was saved, uh, I was suddenly happy. Yeah. I, had, I had joy. And not just goofing around funny, like I actually had joy. Mm -hmm. And I had purpose. I really came to understand that my identity is in Jesus. My purpose is found in our triune God, that there is value and, and dignity in life, in suffering, uh, in work. Everything changed. And it, it was such a radical turnaround that my family was happy. My family was not Christian and they were happy. I could have become a Scientologist. They wouldn't have cared yeah. uh, either way. The fact that I took down my pentagrams and upside down crosses <laughs> and I, and I wasn't so dark anymore. They were just thrilled that I was feeling better. Yeah. So yeah, uh, everything changed, not everything, uh, but most things changed pretty rapidly for that me. That sort then. of core like struggle mm -hmm. of like wanting to, I mean, where did that come from? Where did that, that, Sort of a what did the, what was the appeal of Satanism and that those sort of that sort of iconography? Mm -hmm. I have friends who are into this stuff, mm -hmm. and for them it seems like um, there is like a religious interest. They are very interested in like that religious religious questions, mm -hmm. um, and they're very interested in like sort of a real approach to sort of the dark sides of humanity. And it almost seems like two sides of the same coin in some way. From a very young age, I was um, asking. The more philosophical questions. Yeah. Why am I here? What's the point of life? Yeah. And the answers that my family would give me were typical American. Uh, you're here to get married, have kids, have a good job, 
be happy. Mm-hmm. And of course, that means that if I don't get married and am not happy, then I have no purpose or value. And I would despair. Why do we suffer? Why is there suffering? And nobody had good answers for me. I was frustrated by what I perceived to be and this was in, in, as an ignorant kid who didn't know anything. I was just frustrated by uh, the kinds of religion that I, I had seen, but mostly through pop culture. So it was all very yeah. much um, exaggerated and caricatured. Sure. Uh, when I read Anton Le- I was 14 when I read the Satanic Bible. And back then you couldn't buy it unless you were 18. So I had to steal it from the B. Dalton or Waldens or something like that. <laughs> and uh, I read this book and it it is a very self-centered American feeling religion where the whole point of your existence is to achieve your full potential and to satisfy uh, the desires of the flesh and that you can achieve those things through magic. So huh. even even the atheistic brand of Satanism, which was you know, Anton Sandor LeVay, even the atheistic brand of Satanism where there is no God, there is no devil, uh, there is still magic mm-hmm. that is in play. And so through rituals and incantations and whatnot, there is a lot offered to the individual. And in fact, what I found is that the devil gave me everything I wanted, all temporal, all worldly, but I got everything that I wanted and eventually found that it just led to death. I mean, it was Ecclesiastes without the fear of the Lord. Yeah. So it, yeah. it left me in a really bad place. And that's when I began to hear the, about the gospel. How Did you have any relationships or any interactions with pastors or churches during that period? No. 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 You just stayed away? Well, I'd, it was never an option. Yeah. I'd never been in church. Okay. So I'd never, I'd never, I mean, I'd vandalized churches um, <laughs> uh, in Geneva. So you had so, access. So, sorry. Sorry, First Presbyterian or, or Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva <laughs> a, uh, on Eastside Drive. Is there a... Uh, Sorry about that. I was a kid. Time limit on that. Can they still charge you for that? I don't know. They, oh, I got married in that church building, okay. so... <laughs> nice. <laughs> I kind of really owe them. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> or not awesome. Not cool kids to vandalize churches. Are there kids churches. listening to this? Yeah. The, our our um, audience is mostly 12 to 14-year-olds. You just start off with a lot of like... Uh, Modern hip hop music that the kids like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you name a couple bands of modern hip hop music? Yeah, modern the, the 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 stuff the kids like. Yeah, uh, Drake. Who's who's on Drake? Drake, just Drake. 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 I've never heard of him. Uh, he's very popular. <laughs> I can't. I'm. You're getting me flustered just by pretending that Drake doesn't exist. Okay. Okay. So, um, when you were saved, it was very soon after that that you re- recognized like a a, a a parent calling to pastoral ministry. Yeah, it's converted and within a year. And in mm-hmm. fact, when I started to talk to people about this, a lot of people told me that my past was too messed up. I couldn't be a pastor. Yeah. So I actually went to trade school. Yeah. Yeah. To be uh, HVAC, heating, ventilation, air conditioning. Okay. And have you always been a Southern Baptist? Uh, wow. Well, um, sorry, is that no, r- no, a rude boy, question? no, not at all. It's just, it's such an ignorant one. Okay. <laughs> How could I have always been a Southern Baptist? I mean, like once I, you were saved. You think, oh, I did see you, what you're saying. When you were born again, okay. that, did you then go to a Southern Baptist church and you were like, oh, no. yeah, this is it? They, people do know, like if they hear me on other podcasts, I'm wildly insulting. So yeah. if, if, if this is a new audience, though, they may not know that. I only insult people I really, really like. We'll put a content warning at the beginning. Okay. Um, no, actually, I, I wound up going to a Baptist church because that's where I was introduced to Jesus was mm-hmm. by those Christians. And when I found myself uh, 
lining up with what they called Calvinism. I didn't have any idea what that was. I was just reading my Bible over and over and over again. And they kept saying that the things that I was saying were Calvinistic. Yeah. When I eventually saw that there were some real differences here, then I started going to a Bible church that was more Calvinistic. And uh, I started in, at Moody Bible Institute. Mm -hmm. And while there, I joined a Southern Baptist church where the pastor was a Calvinist. And uh, we had a lot more in common theologically. And so during my time at, at Moody, I continued to study and found myself going uh, deeper and deeper into Reformed theology as I read and compared the various systems, um, was leaning Presbyterian or at least Pado yeah. uh, Baptist for a while. But ultimately in my, in my studies and in my research, I landed in the credo position. So um, when it was time to go to seminary, it was either RTS, Westminster or Southern Seminary. And I decided on Southern. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we've planted uh, a Southern Baptist church and all of the churches that we have planted out of our church are all X29 Network and Southern Baptist. One thing that I've noticed is that a lot of churches, a lot of pastors I've heard preach are a little bit, I don't know if coy is quite the word, but maybe coy about like what denomination they're speaking right. from, what perspective they're coming from. Um, a lot of churches leave their denomination out of the name. A lot of these things, I guess the Redeemer Phil fellowship is the name of your church so i guess baptist isn't in the name mm -hmm. but one thing you can say is that in your sermons you are not coy about being a southern baptist it's right. kind of like a thing that you're very upfront about mm -hmm. which is also probably true about everything that you would identify as we put everything out there yeah, yeah. reformed baptist acts 29 southern baptist that doesn't help anybody to pretend and if anything we get to break stereotypes mm -hmm. i love telling people that we're a southern baptist church because for most of the people up here in Chicagoland, they say, wait, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said, no, we're not Baptist. We're Southern Baptist. Right. We are the Baptisty Baptists. Well, what's really weird is that you're a Southern Baptist church in the, in the Midwest and you're like a big like heavy metal cigars bourbon guy. That's not Southern Baptist. That doesn't fit the stereotype. It's old, old school Southern Baptist. Sure. Right? Yes. <laughs> Before the temperance movement yeah. and then prohibition and when everybody lost their theological minds on mm -hmm. the issue of alcohol. But uh, yeah, we, we've when we started this church, we all agreed that we want to be relentlessly, radically biblical and theological. And we're, we want to pursue godliness, but we are not going to pretend or play any religious games. And so... We have people in our church that differ on many things. We have some teetotalers in our church who would never drink alcohol, and we have beer nerds that brew their own and bourbon snobs uh, who are very particular about what they drink. So we have, you know, wine aficionados, mm -hmm. and we have people that are, you know, coffee experts, and and some people drink and some people don't, and nobody cares. Yeah, there's no drama. We have Democrats and Republicans who are members of our church. Uh, we have people that don't vote on principle, you know, and mm -hmm. then we have people that are, you know, anarcho-capitalists. And it's the gospel that brings everyone together. And our theological distinctives are enough to frame who we are and to move us forward. And it means then if the, if the theology is what forms the community, which is what I believe, theology forms the community. And then out of that community, the mission is worked. Um, if we establish it that way, then those peripheral issues can't cloud what we're about or what sets us apart from the culture. Yeah. So do you, have you considered, there's this question of like uh, causing someone to stumble mm -hmm. and it seems at least on the face of it, 
that what Paul is talking about is being a little upfront about what being upfront about things that aren't sin, but it, it is it feels like sin to a lot of people. How do you distinguish between what Paul is talking about there and like saying, uh, I drink bourbon from the pulpit or from in a church meeting or whatever? Right. Well, I don't know that I have a have a great answer for that specific um, analogy, but uh, we're we're very conscientious about the issue of causing weaker brothers to stumble. Right. And that basic idea is not offending somebody. That's not what it offending somebody or bothering them or doing something that another person doesn't like or even doing something that somebody else thinks is sinful yeah. is not causing a brother to stumble. Um, instead, causing your brother to stumble is encouraging him or her to do something against their conscience, which uh, is not a sin in and of itself, but you're leading them to act against their conscience which in and of itself becomes a sin issue. And, and in context, those activities are generally associated with idolatry. So hmm. we're very careful about, about that sort of a thing. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we work hard at knowing our people and at our people knowing each other. And then there is this issue of showing deference to one another and honoring one another. Hmm. So when I have people in my home, if they, let's say that they don't drink or they are, um, recovering alcoholics. We don't offer them beer yeah. or wine. Uh, instead, we just bring out water and Coke. Sure. But if somebody is saying that, if, if for example, there is a teacher or a, a vocal individual who is claiming that something is sin and is teaching that, yeah. uh, then that is something that we would address head on and point out that the real sin is in falsely binding the consciences of God's people with extra biblical law. So I think if Paul Paul would say to us, you know, show deference, honor one another, don't cause one another to stumble, but if somebody comes along and is teaching that something is sin that is not sin, then I think he would confront that issue uh, straight ahead and be very, very direct. I mean, we're really sensitive on the issue of alcohol, but let's just say that uh, somebody it really believes that it's wrong, it's immoral to eat meat. Mm -hmm. Like, well, we don't eat meat. It's immoral. It's inherently wrong to kill anything that has a face. Or well, my daughter is a vegetarian. My oldest daughter is a vegetarian. So weird. And <laughs> and so she does not eat anything with a face. Is it a moral thing or like a... She, she would say, she's a Christian girl, right. um, smart kid. She, she would just say, listen, I, I'm not saying this is biblical. I'm saying that I don't want to, I don't like the way the animals are treated. Yeah. And I don't want to play a part in that. I don't like how they're killed. I don't like any of that. So I'm out. Yeah. And thanks Netflix documentaries for screwing <laughs> up my kid. Jeez, yeah. I watched one documentary. So, um, so but we're not, we're, the whole church is not going to give up meat because somebody has a, a bizarre moral stance that the Bible doesn't address. Yeah. I, I think we need to be careful with this issue of liberty. And I think we need to make sure that we are pursuing the spiritual welfare of everyone under our care in every church. But when it comes to any kind of legalism or uh, neo-nomianism, uh, we got to call that out. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. You are uh, you are the pastor of a relatively small church. Mm-hmm. You have a platform. You write books. I, want, I said the word platform to make you squirm, by the way. Well, I, I, I don't actually stand on one anymore, though. I used to have a platform at that No, I meant like a metaphorical platform. Oh, you mean a metaphor, not a real platform? Like you have, I thought you were making height jokes you again. Just, you, you, for instance, you just established a Facebook page. You I have your own Facebook oh page. Um, people yeah. can like you on Facebook if you can. Please <laughs> like me. I'm, I really need it. Like Joe Thorne on li- Facebook. Do you like me? What's interesting to me is that you're super uncomfortable with that idea. Like it seems really evident to me that you don't love that idea. You have a, you have a small church. Do you want to grow it? No, I don't want to reach anybody. You don't want to reach I'm any people? I'm pretty happy just chilling out. Is that sincere? No. Or are you being sarcastic? No, of course we want to read. Let me let me say a couple things. One, um, well, d- yeah, grow it versus reaching people, maybe two different things. But yeah. you guys are planning churches, right? Right. Yeah. So we're 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 very passionate about making disciples, and making disciples means that we have to preach the gospel indiscriminately to all people everywhere, mm-hmm. and calling them to faith and repentance, uh, and then maturing them in the faith so that they can know and follow Jesus well. Yeah. So that's really important to us. We are big on church planting and church revitalization, so we help other churches where we can, even mm-hmm. though we are small ourselves. But we've had some experience there. And uh, we like to send out these other churches because we believe that's a, a, a critical way that we carry out the Great Commission. So we want the church to grow, um, and we want our church to grow in knowledge and wisdom and faith and godliness, and yes, in number, because I think, you know, when people are moving into the area and they're looking for a church to really join, to have close family, uh, community uh, centered around Jesus, uh, I think that's great. And then, of course, reaching the lost. Uh, we want our church to grow very, very much. But we are not interested in being a church of 800. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, what do we average? 250 on Sunday, if you yeah. count the kids. So we're a small church. I think if we never hit 500, that's probably good. Yeah. We would rather start more churches that are smaller in more cities throughout Chicago, where there is a better shared sense of family and community and an easier way of exercising pastoral care and oversight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on the platform, I got to go back to the platform thing. Yes. I've written a couple of small books and I've got uh, three more that are coming out through Moody Publishers. You've written Note to Self, mm-hmm. The Discipline of Preaching to Yourself. That's one book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you've written another book called uh, Experiencing the Trinity, The Grace, The Trinity. The Trinity. Did you like how I said uh, that? It's very English. The Grace of God for the People of God. Right. And then you've written for various uh, Bibles yeah. and you've written, um, which is a weird thing to say. You've written notes for various Bibles. And then adding to scripture. Right. Yeah. Not yet. No, no. You got to get a little bigger. My platform has to grow a lot more (laughs) before I can do that. Right. And then you're writing a a three-book series for Moody. Yeah. And that's all on ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really excited about that. And so they're – and they know I hate doing – promotion of my books uh with in the past i'll basically say hey i'm writing a book and then when it comes out i'll say here's my book and that's the last i'm going to mention it you're a book publisher's dream yeah i don't i don't go hey it's christmas you know what makes a christmas present anything by joe thorne go to joethorne.net right now and save 10 percent. like I, I can't do that yeah so and i told moody i said i'm not interested i'm not i won't and uh they said no we don't think you should we will handle 
the promotional aspects. And so, uh, I, but I know that like I, I just hit the maximum friend limit on Facebook. And so, and people keep asking to be my friends. So I said, well, I'll start a, an author's page so that people can still hang out and interact. I'm very interactive on social media. So if people send me emails or texts, I try to respond and we, you know, do all that. So I just figured that, yeah, a Facebook page would be helpful, particularly with the book coming out so that right. more people can learn about it. Yeah. Right. How important is that? That's like part of your personality. It seems pretty to come pr- pretty easily to you. That's not part of my personality. Like I am a very like self-involved person. I'm going to turn conversations into conversations about me very often. And I am often on Twitter trying to like sing who's following me and who's not. This is the thing I struggle with. Is that something that is going to make it harder for a pastor to really do their work? Well, or a church leader of any kind, really, to really do their work well. Or do you think like there's is there some is there some flaw that comes with not wanting to be, be that guy and not wanting to be seen? No, I, I think I think we're all wired a little bit differently, and so sure. we have unique struggles and temptations. You know, the more you get to know me, the more you realize that I'm a total mess in so many ways. Yeah, but um, like I don't. So I think I think everybody's going to have different weaknesses as it relates to this kind of a thing. I've, I don't have any self-confidence. Like mm-hmm. that's just the honest truth. I, I think I'm, I generally think I'm bad at everything. So I never in a million years would have approached a publisher and said, Hey, would you like me to write a book for you? Here's a proposal. Yeah. Check it. What you think? Hey girl, yeah. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, so they, Crossway approached me because mm-hmm. they read my blog. I liked writing and I liked interacting online. So I wrote a blog and um, they said, Hey, we like this. You think this could be a book? And I said, absolutely. And so we wrote a book. Um, same thing, like Moody approached me about yeah. writing for the church or at least writing on the church. So um, I'm not confident in putting myself out there until enough people say, listen, you need to share this. This is good for others. So go ahead and do it. And, and here's what I found on a practical level. My blog was pretty popular in 05 and 06, for example, like massive traffic just from blogging. Uh, no, no books, nothing. And... Uh, my church was not faring very well hmm. and I put it away, you know, I yeah. barely blogged and I really focused on my church and Hey, look, yeah, the church is doing a whole lot better. It's a lot healthier now. Yeah. And I never track my stats. I don't see how many visits I get a day. Yeah. I mean, I know every once in a while because I have to look at something to, or whatever in the metrics, but um, I know that my hits are down from what they used to be. And I just, don't care. I don't, I, I don't have alerts for my name right. on Google searches or news. I have, I just, I try to focus on my church. And then when I have the opportunity, I'll write stuff um, for the church at large. Concretely, what was the difference when you were, when you were blogging and focused on that? Like what were, how was that affecting your church? Well, a lot of this is just sort of me wondering, right? So, and some observations. I spent a lot of time thinking and writing about the blog. I spent a lot of time in 05 and in 06 watching the blog and watching the online, watching reactions. What are other people saying? What are they doing? Yeah. And now I don't do any of that. Yeah. I follow like four Christian blogs and that's about it. I just, I don't listen to preaching podcasts. I, I, I focus on the local church, what we're doing. And I do a little bit of outside looking around, but yeah, I don't. So I just I, I know that my my energy is directed at the local church at and the not. Yeah, yeah. And the energy is not directed beyond that. The books that I'm writing are things that I've been teaching at the local church for the last eight and a half years. Yeah. So even what I'm writing right now uh, at nights in my garage with a heater on is um, is stuff that I've been deeply embedded in and practicing all uh-huh. this time. 
So uh, I just, and here's what I saw. I mean, I, I started talking when we, that first church plant, this was back in 05 and 06. Um, I got to meet a lot of really good pastors and I had friends that were very, in my estimation, what I would say they were successful pastors, not because of the size of their church, but the way their church was healthy churches. Yeah. And though most of them were much larger than what we're pastoring now. And the commonality in all of them was uh, they were not distracted by denominational politics. Mm. They were not distracted by online conversations. They were almost singularly focused on their church. Okay. Yeah. So they might choose one website to read and it would be mine. It should be. It would be Christianity Today's The Local Church. And you can find a link to my blog from there probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, and you can, people can read a ton. Like some no, people, I think, listen, I just, I don't have a lot of time to sit down and read yeah. blogs. So I, I have a few that I follow and, um, and then I'm reading books. Yeah. I, like, I like books. So I invest in that stuff more. It does seem like there is, there is, uh, what you're seeing happen is a reaction to a lot of people who went all in on platform. Who really thought like this was a good investment um, and maybe didn't think it through. Maybe they did. I don't know. I mean, and I, I personally think like there's a, probably a value for some people to have a platform of some kind. But for the average pastor, it kind of makes sense to like that would not be your default stance. You know, the default stance would be a, a kind of slavish focus on the local church. Who you got to take care of people. Yeah. Right. Like, I've got three really important meetings after this yeah. uh, that'll go into the evening. And I have to be praying about those meetings throughout the week. I've got to be preparing for these meetings and then I'm going to go and I got to be all in. I don't know, especially pastors of church plants that are smaller or churches that are smaller, you don't have much time. Yeah. These are guys that are trying to figure out how much time will I have for a sermon prep? How much time will I have for family time? How much time will I have for counseling and then leadership development, elders meetings, deacons meetings or whatever they are. You're going to try and, and, and put in another 10 hours a week with online when it's, I don't, I don't know that the benefit is that great. Yeah. Do you, uh, did you ever have a time once you started, uh, working towards pastoral ministry, was there a period where you thought you might've been wrong to do that? Where you thought that maybe I'm not cut out for this? No, never. No, I, I, um, I have felt like I don't belong in this church, like okay. in a particular church. Mm -hmm. Um, I have felt like, you know, this is culturally not a good fit for me. I pastored in rural central Kentucky, mm -hmm. not a good fit for a guy like yeah, me. Sure. That yeah. did not blend in. Yeah. Uh, they had a hard time with me. I had a hard time with them. We loved each other. Mm, I loved, I loved them and most of them, half of them loved me. Uh, it was definitely difficult. Yeah. And so I've, I've been in different church situations where I know maybe this isn't the right fit, but I have since... That first church said, you should pursue pastoral ministry. Um, I haven't, I'm not a guy that looks back mm -hmm. and like questions what, like what, what, what coulda or shoulda. Sure. Um, and so, and my view of calling for pastoral ministry is not just, oh, I feel this, so I got to go. Yeah. Um, I th I th I'm more in the Richard Baxter um, camp and the Spurgeon camp, which says, you know, you've got to have this unquenchable thirst to do this work of ministry and nothing else will quite satisfy, but you also need uh, the confirmation of the local church and you also need to bear fruit in that work. And when those three things come together, your calling should be fairly established. What's the fruit look like? Well, it looks different in different ways, but okay. say um, 
for a leader, uh, do people follow? Are people willing to follow you? Do people look to you for counsel? Uh, do they uh, receive your teaching well? Yeah. Uh, when you're sharing the gospel, like maybe the, the person that's really uh, thinks like, yeah, maybe I should be an evangelist. Well, are people getting saved uh, when you go out and evangelize? <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. If not, well, maybe that's not your strength. Maybe uh -huh. evangelism is. Maybe it's a passion, but it's not a strength. So fruit's going to take different uh, forms. But I think in general, do we see uh, disciples being made? I mean, that might be the most general way to say it, right? Are, yeah. When you do this work, does it help in discipleship for pastors? Uh, that's what. That's one of the things that we're looking at, big mm -hmm. picture. What is? Um, what would you say is like one of the biggest struggles you had in the ministry? For me personally, um, I think, well, I, the most obvious one is the one that I've talked about quite a bit, which is when I got into a situation where I was working too much and I was not resting. Mm. I was not uh, present at home. Even when I was home, I was constantly checking my emails at the dinner table and taking care of things. And then after dinner, I would work and then I put the kids to bed or Jen would, and then I would go back to work. And, um, and I really burned out bad. And I, I've, I've told that story a bit. So if you want me to, I, I can, but the, mm -hmm. the short of it is that, um, I was overwrought with anxiety and fear and, it came to the point where I really believed, though the church was healthy and was great and my family was good, and but I got to this point where I felt like maybe I shouldn't be pastoring anymore yeah. because I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. I'm, I became so twisted up in my head and in my heart, I couldn't see a way forward. And um, I had to get help from Dr. David Murray at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. He, you know, phone uh, coached me and counseled me through all of that. And I talked to a number of my friends and um, and got healthy. It took a while, but I got healthy. And I talk about all of that in the beginning, in the introduction of experiencing the Trinity. Well, if people want to read that story, so if you're a, if you're a fearful big baby like me, uh, <laughs> that's that's a place to start. You know, you'll be able to identify with my story. But so I think what I see a lot of pastors struggling with, and what I did is not knowing how to set up proper parameters and boundaries and margin yeah. so that you don't overextend yourself. Because mm -hmm. once you're overextended, you're not really effective in any area. Um, rest is mm -hmm. incredibly important. So uh, those are those are two areas. So, I mean, it kind of sounds like, well, you know, my, I guess my, my, my biggest uh, flaw is that I work too hard. You know, it's like a, a false humility kind of a thing. But yeah. it for, for guys in leadership that honestly, the fact that they tend to idolize uh, themselves or their work or their position or the church that they started or whatever, yep. it leads to a lot of trouble. Yeah. The, uh, you've, you've talked pretty candidly at other places, and I think you may have been alluding to this here, but um, the, you've struggled with depression, right? Anxiety. Anxiety. Okay. You've struggled with anxiety, but like a, a kind of clinical kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, what made you feel like you should talk about that publicly? Because it's not it's, – I think that a lot of people in your position probably struggle with that. Yeah. And they assume if they talked about it publicly, their position would be called into question. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Um, I knew that I would be talking about it publicly, not just that I struggle with anxiety, but that I'm also – on medication for anxiety. Right. I knew that I was going to share that because a, I don't like telling, I don't like people telling me what I can and can't say. Yeah. And, uh, so that never goes well. And I know that that's kind of the, shh, don't listen, you know, you're going to trip people up with that. Right. And I also know that there are a ton, there is a large number of pastors. I mean, there's, there's millions of Christians that are struggling with this, but there are tons of pastors that are on medication are terrified to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I know that from talking to other counselors, 
so I knew that I would be talking about it because I, th- I, I, here's what I found. I found that my insecurities and my anxiety and fears, which were crippling me, uh, led me to this place where I, I saw very clearly I'm the weakest man that I know. And I really believe that. Um, and I've never, cons- I, you know, I guess I fancied myself sort of a tough guy back in the day, uh, a five foot two tough guy. But, um, <laughs> and at this point I realized I am, I'm nothing. I've got nothing. I, I don't have this. And so as God began to strengthen me and heal me through the ministry of the word and good leaders and pastors and friends and medication, um, that's when I came to see I'm still the weakest guy in the room, but I'm not afraid of that anymore. Mm-hmm. God is my strength. He is enough. And so now I have more confidence than I ever had before. And I feel like myself uh, for, I mean, it's been a few years now, but I mean, I started to feel like me again. And it was years and years uh, since I had. So I just had this freedom. And honestly, I don't care what other churches uh, how other churches measure us up or evaluate us. I mean, I've, we've had, we've had pastors, you know, kind of take shots at our little, you know, little tiny church in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, we've had pastors of big churches take shots at us. I won't mention any names. Um, and, uh, because of something silly like pub talk or theology pub that we were, that we do. Uh huh. Because of the alcohol. Because they serve beer there. Yeah. Uh, or whatever it is. And it's like, I don't care if, there's never another book or uh, I, I care about the local church. I care about what's going on in St. Charles in right. the Fox Valley area. That's where my heart is. And so I don't, I don't care if other people think that I shouldn't speak at their thing because I don't need to. Yeah. St. Charles is your hometown. Pretty much. I mean, I grew up in Geneva, which is one town South, but it's uh, it's all on top of each other. Right. Yeah. It's Geneva, St. Charles, Batavia, Aurora, Elgin, uh, all of those. I mean, a lot of the Chicago suburbs are really just, small cities piled up on top of each other. So you, know, you almost don't know when you've left one and entered another. Yeah. But yeah, that's where I, I grew up and came to know the Lord. So are you despised in your own hometown? Yeah. You know, I, I wondered about that. Yeah. But uh, no. Um, in fact, it's it's been interesting. When I became a Christian, it was kind of, there was a lot of talk back at the high school. Joey, Joey became a born again Christian, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's go get him, you know, or whatever. Cause I was such a whatever um, back in the day. But what I found uh, when I came back is that uh, people are, when they meet me again, they're interested, curious, happy for me, or they want nothing to do with me. They just write it off. But I haven't experienced any any hostility um, at all. What I have had to do is, I, especially in the first few years, I had to do a lot of apologizing because mm-hmm. I would run into people and I'd be like, didn't we go to high school together? And the guy would be like, yeah, <laughs> you remember what you did to me in the bathroom? Uh-huh. And I'm like, dude, you're like six foot tall. What, what could I have done to you in the bathroom? And then he tells me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry about that, man. <laughs> I was a total lur- loser. I was a jerk. I'm sorry. Yeah. Don't, uh, don't. Uh, you know, I, I, if I could go back, I would. So yeah, no, I haven't, uh, I haven't experienced anything. And honestly, it's, you know, it's a big enough area where, I, I mean, I don't really run into a lot of people that I went to high school with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I spend some time with a couple of guys here and there, but honestly. Um, it's good to come back to my home area because I know these people. These are my people. I love these people. And I have a love-hate relationship with this culture. Yeah. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of corruption and idolatry and evil. And so I think this is where God wants me to be, to be the most effective pastor I can be. Yeah. Uh, if you were talking to yourself at 
19 or 20, shortly after you're like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go into ministry and you're super pumped about it or whatever. Uh, what would you say? I would say, Joe, shut your mouth. <laughs> Don't talk so much. Read a lot. Read the Bible more. Mm -hmm. Pray a lot. Pray with other brothers and sisters. Um, learn from everybody you can. You can learn from Wesley. You can learn from Whitfield. You don't have to just choose the guy that shares all of your theology or most of your theology. Yeah. Strive to have a clear understanding of who you are so that humility can be real um, before the Lord. Uh, because during that age, you know, when I was in Bible college, I was, um, I was an arrogant, combative Calvinist. Yeah. And I was known on campus as the theologian. <laughs> but I wasn't known on campus as the guy that loved Jesus. Yeah. I wasn't known on campus as the guy that loved the church or yeah. the lost. I was known as the theologian. And so people either really liked that or they didn't like me. And if they didn't like me, it wasn't because I was a Calvinist. It was because I was a jerk. So, um, and it wasn't until the end of my time at Moody where God began to really break down my lack of awareness of pride and the roots of pride and how I had misplaced my devotion to Christ with a devotion to a system mm -hmm. where I had um, elevated the writings of men to essentially be on par with scripture. And so when I did go to seminary after that, I shut my mouth. I found some brothers to pray with. Yeah. So boy, if, uh, if I could go back or for maybe I just would have listened more carefully to good people around me, I would have shut up and talked less and yeah. read the Bible more. You've been listening to The Calling. Joe Thorne is the pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois. You can follow him on Twitter at Joe Thorne. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. People find us on iTunes. That's the way they find us, usually through the top charts. So the more ratings we get, each and individual one moves us further up those charts. Makes a big difference. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Leo Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.